0: Hi, and welcome to Lakeshore Update. I'm Dee Dotson. On this edition of the podcast, you'll hear the latest on a new contract with the Portage Township Schools set to give teachers a boost in pay. Brandon Smith reports Indiana lawmakers may come back into session ahead of schedule. And Chris Nolte has a conversation with Valparaiso University Business Economics Professor Elizabeth Gingrich, about the impact of global warming on national as well as Northwest Indiana economies. All of that and more on this edition of Lakeshore Updates. Portage teachers are set to get a $5,000 pay raise under their tentative contract. The Times reports it would put the salary range of $47,500 to $77,900, a 9.5% increase. But members of the Portage Association of Teachers bargaining team say it would also make it take longer for teachers to move up the salary scale. The full $5,000 raise requires teachers to have worked at least 120 days in the past year and be rated effective or highly effective. Increases could be higher once extracurricular pay is included. The contract has been ratified by the Teachers Association. It will be up for the Portage Township School Board's final approval on Monday. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Officials in Hammond broke ground Thursday on an $18 million industrial laundry facility that supports hospitals and other health care offices in Northwest Indiana. Indianapolis-based, United Hospital Services, Inc. is constructing a nearly 56,000-square-foot facility. It's being built on vacant land in the West Point area near Goslin Street and Columbia Avenue. UHS, which is Indiana's largest healthcare laundry service company, says it selected Hammond for its second facility because of its location. The company says when the facility opens in December 2022, it will support 35 new jobs. UHS says it plans to add at least 100 additional positions over the next five years. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Northwest Indiana's four casinos racked up an almost 47% increase in year-over-year revenues in October. And Hard Rock Casino in Gary led the state in casino revenue with $32.3 million. Almost $10 million of that was in table wins. Hard Rock executives said they were very pleased with the revenue results. Horseshoe Hammond was next, according to the Indiana Gaming Commission, with $31.5 million. Shannon McKellar, the vice president for marketing for Horseshoe Hammond, said October was another month of strong volumes in both tables and slots for the Indiana market. Ameristar Casino in East Chicago brought in $20.75 million compared to $18.76 million, a 10.6% jump. And Blue Chip Casino in Michigan City took in $12.62 million, 23.8% more than last October revenue figures. Blue Chip Sports Wagering Tax was the highest in the state at $903,000, while Ameristar's was the second highest, at $830,000. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Porter County Assessor John Snyder won't be seeking re-election next year. The Times reports the three-term Republican says he wants to, quote, focus more time on family, end quote. Snyder listed a number of accomplishments during his 12 years in office, including being the first assessor in the state to offer online appeals and adding millions of dollars to the tax rolls through property audits and finding improper exemption applications and credits. He also said he reduced the assessor's office staff by 30 percent, saving money in the county's general fund. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. According to the Chesterton Tribune, a Chesterton High School government teacher who was placed on leave in September due to alleged inappropriate and politically charged statements of opinion during class is apparently not returning to his job. Doolin School Superintendent Chip Pettit says Benjamin Gilman will no longer be teaching in a Doolin School Corporation classroom. Pettit would not answer questions about what an investigation into Gilman's remarks found and would not comment about how the matter was resolved. A senior in Gilman's government class told his father about the teacher's comments in class, saying that Gilman called Trump supporters, quote, homophobic and racist and added expletives to his remarks. The comments occurred during a class just before Labor Day. Gilman was a former Chesterton High School student. He was sponsor of the high school's student government while being a teacher. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita filed the third of his planned lawsuits against the Biden administration's workplace vaccine or test rules. It focuses on an order requiring vaccinations of all health care workers at facilities participating in Medicare or Medicaid. The Biden administration's rule requires all eligible staff to have received at least their first COVID-19 vaccine dose by December 6 and be fully vaccinated by January 4. The regulation provides for exemptions based on recognized medical conditions or religious beliefs, observances, or practices. In a statement Tuesday, Rokita's office says the mandate, quote, causes grave danger to vulnerable persons by forcing the termination of caregivers who are not vaccinated. Of Indiana's more than 16,000 confirmed COVID 19 deaths, about 72% have been Hoosiers 70 and older. Nearly 90% of breakthrough deaths are Hoosiers 65 and older. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. During a 12-month period, deaths by drug overdose in Indiana reached their highest levels ever recorded. effects Public Media's
1: Carter Barrett reports. The number of drug overdose deaths in Indiana rose 32 percent between April 2020 and April 2021. This data was released by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention today. Indiana's increase in fatal overdoses outpaces the national average and saw the highest number of deaths reported since the CDC has kept track. Public health officials say fentanyl is partly to blame. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, that is it's much more deadly than other opioids. Increasingly, black market drugs are being cut with fentanyl, and people may not know it. Earlier this year, federal lab testing revealed four out of ten fentanyl-laced pills contained a potentially lethal dose. Side effects, I'm Carter Barrett.
0: You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Indiana lawmakers may come back into session ahead of schedule to help Governor Holcomb end the state's public health emergency. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Brandon Smith reports on what would prompt a December meeting of the legislature.
2: Holcomb says he needs three changes to state law in order to end the public health emergency, but not lose key benefits for Hoosiers, measures to keep enhanced federal benefits for food assistance and matching funds for Medicaid, and allow the state to more efficiently get 5- to 11-year-olds vaccinated. House Speaker Todd Houston says there's general agreement about making those changes. We're having conversations about those things and whether they would be uh, those three or maybe potentially a little more. And Houston says the legislature might come in for a day in December to make it happen, so that the governor can end the public emergency as soon as possible. Yeah, I think it's more symbolic than a piece of paper. You know, I think you know a lot of us feel like you know we we need to move forward. The legislature doesn't normally begin its work until January. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Brandon Smith at the State House.
0: You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. The Indiana Supreme Court on Monday announced the upcoming launch of a pilot program allowing media recording in some courtrooms. Five trial courts across the state will allow pictures and video recordings of court proceedings. In addition, the project will allow any live stream video feeds of a courtroom to be rebroadcast with a judge's approval. Currently, only the state Supreme Court and appellate courts allow recordings to be taken. Steve Key is the executive director and general counsel for the Hoosier State Press Association, which helped develop the pilot. He says the ability of journalists to request access to courtroom video streams effectively opens every court, not just the five participating in the project.
2: You know, this is opportunities for the media to be able to record and help share information on how the courts operated basically across the state under this pilot project.
0: Media coverage of courtrooms will have some restrictions, including cases involving minors, victims of sex-related offenses, or police informants. The four-month trial begins on December 1st. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Marijuana legalization in any form is still extremely unlikely in Indiana next year, despite a renewed push from Democrats on the issue. The Indiana Democratic Party and the Indiana House Democratic Caucus announced their full support of legalization. The Indiana Senate Democratic Caucus has long backed the movement on the issue whether for medical use or through decriminalization. Senate Democratic Leader Greg Taylor says as more states get on board, Indiana can't keep stalling.
2: Some of you might have read an article that said that 60% of the people who are buying cannabis in the southern portion of Michigan come from Indiana. It's here.
0: Republican Senator Mark Messmer threw cold water on legalization in the near future.
1: I mean, it's an issue that does poll well with the public, but there's still
2: conflicting uh, federal statutes that make it a uh, little difficult to, to, to bring forward.
0: As an example, Mesmer cited issues with federally backed banks being unable to work with businesses involved in marijuana. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Police departments across Indiana are sharing in millions of dollars in federal grants intended to help curb reckless driving that's led to an increase in fatal crashes during the pandemic. The Indiana Criminal Justice Institute recently awarded Indiana State Police $1 million and nearly 200 other police departments will divvy up another $4 million. The Indianapolis Star reports police will use the money to conduct zero-tolerance, overtime patrols, and sobriety checkpoints, mostly during specific enforcement periods. The first enforcement period will take place around the Thanksgiving holiday. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. The Indiana State Teachers Association is calling on lawmakers during the 2022 General Assembly to restore educators' collective bargaining rights on issues related to health and safety, class sizes, and teacher prep. Periods. As Indiana Public Broadcasting's Lee Gaines reports, the demand comes a decade after lawmakers stripped collective bargaining rights from teachers on anything other than salary and wage-related items. The Indiana State Teachers Association says restoring bargaining rights will help curb the state's teacher shortage and in turn help students regain academic losses suffered during the coronavirus pandemic. Jessica Ramirez is a special education teacher at Elkhart Community Schools.
1: We are the experts in engaging what our students need. If we have a class that has a large number of students with educational deficiencies, we need smaller classes because one teacher can only do so much.
0: Ramirez spoke during a virtual press conference. Other teachers who spoke say educators are under increased stress and they need more time to take care of themselves. Nearly 97 percent of school districts surveyed reported a teacher shortage this school year. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Lee Gaines. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Here's regionally speaking host Chris Nolte with a conversation with Professor Elizabeth Gingrich.
2: Let's continue our conversations with uh, professors at uh, Valparaiso University. This time we're going to find out more about uh, the business law end from the College of Business. We have Professor Elizabeth Gingrich with us. And uh, Professor Gingrich, thank you for joining us on Lakeshore Public Radio. My pleasure. Well, if you will first explain for folks who not familiar with uh, the teachings at the College of Business at VU about the graduate and the undergraduate courses. In business law that you you teach on campus,
1: surely. Um, in terms of undergraduate business law, uh, basically I teach everything from the environment to securities to employment discrimination. In fact, uh, twenty seventeen I launched my own textbook um, in these subjects to provide for my students free of charge. Um, again, with a specific focus on how the environment is impacting various segments. Of industry. With respect to MBA teachings, I've been doing this for 20 years as well, but the focus there is on international governance, international trade. And so, again, teaching both is very different. And with that being said, ethics is a mainstay of both international governance as well as business law nationally. And with that, as the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Values-Based Leadership since 2007, this has been the focus. The focus has been on business Business leaders, government leaders, academicians writing about ethics and principles, values-based leadership in their various segments of business.
2: Is this a, an area that maybe is not as often uh, looked into by the general public or certainly academia in general? Uh, when you talk about values-based leadership, they probably don't even know, understand what that's about.
1: I'm sure that what I see in terms of trends is that that is quickly changing. It used to be in the early years I would interview people and solicit articles, and now the submissions are extremely increased. In fact, the journal was mentioned in the New York Times last January, and so it commands an audience of about close to 600 downloads per day on six continents. Wow. So, yes, uh, we're ready for our next publication by the middle of next month. And actually, I've gone back to interviewing post-pandemic certain business leaders uh, for the next issue. I do have students, both undergrad and graduate, writing for this issue of the journal, especially as the COP26 just wound up over the weekend in Glasgow, Scotland, again, with a focus on environmental impact in various industrial sectors.
2: I know. I've mentioned uh, uh, to my my colleagues about uh, some of the issues uh, that have come up in recent years about uh, about environmental law in particular. You see articles and the like, and the and they ask questions about it. And, and from people that I have talked to about it, they have been very surprised that there's been an interest. But it is something that just, certainly now with the, all of the events and recent weeks. And and just wrapping up in Scotland, there's very serious concern these days about ethics in environmental law, aren't there?
1: Yes, uh, very much so. In fact, uh, they go hand in hand. Ethics and environmental concerns and protections do complement one another. And I would go so far as to say both ethical business practices and environmental protections are now mandates of business, not just nationwide, but worldwide.
2: Has that been something that in in recent years has come to pass, that maybe there was concern about ethics in business overall, but it's kind of uh, narrowed down to to concerns about environmental law?
1: Well, again, as uh, more cases of corruption in business surface, and as we're looking at a ticking clock with respect to planetary demise, both of these issues intertwine. they're symbiotic. And they've come to the surface, and I see that uh, most of the submissions that I receive as editor are inclined to, again, talk about environmental protections and ethics in business. And so, you know, again, when you're looking at less than a decade of irreversible harm, and you saw over the summer, this is one of our, I believe it's our hottest year on record so far, but you see, just in this country, with the drought conditions in uh, California and over, what, 3 million acres burning this year, 2.2 million acres burning last year, and with a good, close to 50% of our fruits and vegetables coming out of Central California and so much of that area burning you know, to a lunar apocalyptic uh, mm-hmm. conditions, we're looking at food scarcity. We're looking at loss of life. Uh, The bootleg fire in Oregon, you're looking at agricultural workers starting at 3 o'clock in the morning because by 8 o'clock in the morning, it's too hot. People are dying, Uh, and businesses see this. I think regardless of government policies and political trends, you're seeing business lead in these areas of, once again, um, renewable energies, transition to electric vehicles. These are, again, goals that have been mandated by business long before government uh, got a
2: hold of it. We're talking with Valparaiso University uh, Business Law Professor Elizabeth Gingrich. She's uh, with the College of Business on uh, the uh, VU campus. Uh, mm-hmm. Professor Gingrich, can you speak on as what we're finding and what seems to be happening these days uh, nationally as well as globally in the economies uh, that seem to be uh, creating all of these opportunities and challenges that even back home here in Northwest Indiana we're going to be facing?
1: Yes. I would say that in terms of the world economy, it remains symbiotic and integrated uh, despite the challenges of the pandemic. What's happened, obviously, with people staying home under quarantine is that demand for products and services uh, decreased, uh, greatly reduced. And now that people are coming back to life. Uh, people want to travel. People are buying at uh, at rates that, um, again, supply the supply chain just can't handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are panning out, but it's going to take some time. What I would say too, I think it's important to note that since the end of World War II, cessation of activities uh, that that the world has has uh, really spotlighted an integrated world economy, uh, facilitated free trade. Um, and then with the entry into GATT, and that's the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which again gave us the WTO, World Trade Organization, in Geneva, Switzerland, it's been a global economy. It's been multi, the focus has been on multilateralism. The challenges we're facing now um, are greater than ever. And that is geopolitical tensions, um, more of an emphasis on nationalism, cybersecurity threats, and of course, climate change. So, when you're importing articles uh, from across the ocean, obviously there's going to be a footprint just in the transportation of those articles and distribution uh, of them to various retail chains and to individuals. Uh, So, that's, you know, that's at the forefront of what are we going to do about carbon footprints. You've heard net zero by 2050. What happened over the weekend at the COP26 is that First of all, you had two of the largest carbon emitters not even showing up, and that was China uh, and the Russian Federation. Uh, You had India that took the 2050 goal and pushed it over to 2070. And instead of phasing out coal, it was more, instead of declining to use coal, it's phasing out of coal. And so there are certain things that happened over the weekend that sort of um, dulled the impact of what could have been a more forceful agreement between 200 nations um, at the
2: COP26. During the, the conference, in fact, at the very end of the conference, there's a lot of uh, controversy, I guess, that's developed because smaller nations, uh, like the uh, some of the island nations, are very, very worried about uh, being able to reach the goals. They're the ones that are seeing the impact as we speak because uh, we see the, the, the sea changes, literally.
1: Yeah. With, the, with, the,
2: with the higher oceans and the like causing them problems uh, for their populations as well as for their livelihoods with fishing and the like. Uh, do you think that nations like the United States, uh, if they haven't uh, delved into that before very deeply, that they maybe should uh, make a point to help these smaller countries out more?
1: Well, developed nations made their promises back in 2015 at the Paris Climate Change Accord, and those promises have not been fulfilled and that's what's extremely con- disconcerting. Uh, you have the majority of the impact of climate change impacting nations, countries, regions, territories uh, that are less able to handle it. Um, so, African, several African nations, the the sub-Saharan desert, the rate of desertification in uh, northern Africa and central Africa. Um, you mentioned Pacific island nations, in the Marshall Islands, Vanuatu. Several other chains are literally going underwater, mm-hmm. uh, but in terms of aid coming to those nations, it's it's been. Um Less than miltos here. It's, it's been basically a breach of pledges that uh, were made six years ago. So in terms of uh, a world endeavor, at least by developing nations, to help developing nations, uh, we will see the focus was definitely there. At least one of the uh, highlights was was on hel- helping developing nations, whether or not that translates into actual uh, dollars and euros um, You know, we're just going to have to see, but the pressure continues.
2: Well, Professor Gingrich, thanks for spending time with us today to talk about uh, yourself and about uh, what you're teaching at the Valparaiso University and some of these issues, certainly, that all surround uh, not only business law, but, as you mentioned, environmental law. And uh, we hope to have a chance to have you back on again and talk uh, in a little more depth, especially as we uh, delve into some of the uh, the legal issues uh, here in northwest Indiana and around the state of Indiana as well. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Regionally Speaking with host Chris Nolte can be heard each Monday through Thursday at noon on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and streaming online at lakeshorepublicradio.org where you can also find podcasts of the show when you click on the program link. For the latest in local news and information, tune in Monday at 6 a.m. for Morning Edition with local host Chris Nolte. Lakeshore Update is supported by the listeners and members of Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM. Podcasts for Lakeshore Update are posted each Friday on our website, lakeshorepublicradio.org, as well as on NPR One. Make sure you search for WLPR and select us as your home station. Music for Lakeshore Update was written and produced by bensound.com. For Lakeshore Update,
1: I'm D. Dotson.